The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. to hear the voice of God or the mind of God in his word in scripture. Isn't that encouraging? As the children of God, we get to go to his word to literally hear the voice of God through scripture in conjunction with the spirit of God that lives in every believer. The living word of God, life-changing, the, the food for our soul. So we are in Luke chapter 10. You can turn there, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, just listen carefully. It's short. Luke writing about an incident in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord... Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. There it is. Isn't that amazing? This is awesome if you're a Christian. This is the priority. This is the focus. This is what it's all about. It's crystal clear. You can't get any clearer. This is what the Christian life is all about. Isn't that wonderful? This is awesome. Those were the words of my discipleship leader, and I remember it like yesterday, about 30 years ago when I was a sophomore in college and I was a brand-new baby Christian, And we were in a dorm room, and there were about five or six guys. He was a junior. I was a sophomore. We're having discipleship time together. This was the passage of the day. I had read the Gospel of John as a new Christian. I had read some of Paul's epistles. I'd read a little bit of Matthew. I had not yet read Mark or the Gospel of Luke. I was not familiar with this story that day, 30 years ago. And that's what our discipleship leader, Doug, all he did, he just read the passage and he just got so excited he couldn't even explain, man, this is awesome, this is what it's all about, guys. this is what we need to do, this is the Christian life. And he's just going on and on and some of the guys are chiming in and I'm just sitting there, wait, wait did I miss something? <laughs> it completely went over my head. And I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. What in the world, what is in this passage that could fulfill all those demands and expectations that he's saying that it does. I don't get it. Again, I had never studied this passage, and I was a new Christian. 
And that's why God in his grace says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, that he gives gifts to the church. And one of those gifts are teachers. Bible teachers who can take biblical truth and explain it in a way that we can understand down where we can uh, grab it and wrap our arms and brains around it and then apply it to our life. And that's what Doug did that day for me. And I think at the end of that discipleship group Bible study, I kind of, oh, yeah, okay, uh, I, I sort of see that. Verse, the end of verse 39 kind of connects with whatever Jesus is saying in verse 42, and I'm still not sure what he's saying. But I'll, I'll go with you, Doug. You've been a Christian longer than I have. And yes, I will try to be excited about this passage. And so, uh, and the years go by, and just as the years go by more and more, and you grow as a Christian, and you get familiar with the Gospels, the teaching of Jesus, uh, particularly the beautiful simplicity of Jesus. I mean, just look at this thing. Uh, one, two, three, four, five verses. It's Luke telling a story of a, a true incident that happened in the life of Christ. And, and Luke, he, he recounts it, and he doesn't make any comments on it. He doesn't explain it. It's just self-evident. It's not directly related to what came before. It's not directly related to what comes after. But Luke, when he wrote this down in 60 AD, this true story, it did fit a topical thematic purpose that he had as he's trying to win over Theophilus, the dignitary, to believe and commit to Jesus Christ. And he's writing this in 60 AD. The, the Gospel of John doesn't exist. Jesus has been risen for 30 years. Christians that didn't have access immediately to the life of Christ when he lived or to this gospel, they didn't even know who Martha was. This is new information that, that Luke is giving 30 years after the life of Christ in written form. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Luke is the one. You won't find this in Matthew. You don't find it in the 50s. You don't find this in Mark in 55 AD. It's not till 60, 61, 62 AD where we get this information. Luke, we don't know where he got it from, but we know he went to Jerusalem, talked to people, interviewed eyewitnesses who were with Christ, and man, maybe it was Martha or Mary that told him this story 30 years later. And he's like, whoa, that is powerful. And the Spirit of God led him to put it in this gospel. as just this beautiful little jewel so often hidden away, neglected, not read, not studied, not contemplated on. Yet Luke knew this is powerful. This is what the Christian life is all about. Right here, this beautiful simplicity. So we want to explain it so we can fully understand what was Luke thinking. He put this in here for a reason. He's trying to win over Theophilus, the dignitary who's interested in Christianity. The Spirit of God led him to Keep it in there so that people of all ages can hear this. We need to hear this, this incident that happened in the life of Christ. It is simple yet profound. And the theme, in keeping with the title of the sermon today, is uh, the priority of worship. That's what this passage is about. It's a true story. It really happened. The priority of worship. If you're a Christian, that should be of interest to you and to me, the priority of worship 
Uh, let me share a couple of verses in keeping with that ideal that's been true of saints throughout the ages. I'll just read the verse, just listen, because they're real short. I think of King David, 1000 B.C. He was a sinner. He was a pathetic sinner at times, compromiser, but he loved God. He was uh, a believer. He was saved by grace through faith. God loved him. Uh, he knew he was sinful. He wrote all these wonderful, beautiful psalms. Psalm, but when it came down to it, here was David's heart. He says this in many psalms, but here he says it in Psalm 27, verse 4. This is, could be later in his life as he looks back, probably with many regrets, many hardships. Most of those very difficult hardships were within his immediate family, with his children. It's painful, tragic. Nevertheless, he keeps going back to the source, his God. The Lord is my shepherd. And then in Psalm 27, he said this. It's a prayer. He's praying to God. He writes it out. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord. One thing. When all is said and done, I have asked of Yahweh. One thing I beg of my God. One thing. Crystal clear. He was saying, this is my heart's desire. This is the greatest priority. Everything else in the end is secondary. This is the only thing that matters. This is what life is all about. This is why I am here. God, this is why you created me. This is why you saved me. This is what you called me to live for. One thing. In other words, David knew what the priority in life was. That's Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, from Yahweh, from my God. And he goes on to say that is to seek the Lord. And he puts it in this poetic and beautiful way. To behold the beauty of the Lord. There it is. The beauty of the Lord. What's your view of God? It's a good question. Some people think of God, kill joy, mean, judge, vindictive, inept, impotent. And on and on it goes. Not David. He knew the true God as he had revealed himself. The gracious God, the merciful God, the glorious God. God, one thing I've asked from you that I might be able to behold the beauty of the Lord. Present tense, always before me. My ongoing pursuit, my heart's desire. It's frustrating for him because what was in his way, what was uh, the inhibitor, was his, himself was in the way. His own sin. Messes everything up. That was the greatest source of his frustration. Here's my desire, God, and it's in conflict with who I am. My greatest desire is for your beauty, to always behold your beauty before me. One thing. It's categorical. So the point is David knew his priority. That's the, that's the true heart's desire of a real born-again Christian. One thing. That should be our prayer. One thing. What's your one thing? What's my one thing? Listen to Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Fast forward a thousand years. Also Paul uh, trained as a rabbinic scholar, Jew. He was a rising star in the ranks, very impressive as a young man. 
among the rabbis, maybe even the Sanhedrin. Christian hater, Christian killer, par excellence. And then God saved him, and Jesus confronted him by grace, by mercy. He said in 1 Timothy 1, I don't deserve to be saved. Not only am I a wicked, terrible, evil sinner, I am the worst of all sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the worst of all sinners. Yet God, in his grace, saved me. And then God called him to be that wonderful apostle, to give us truth, to be the conduit of God's revelation, preserving it, writing it down for us, that we might be blessed. And has this wonderful two-decade-plus ministry, gives his life for the gospel, beheaded, martyred for Christ. But he said this in Philippians uh, to that church that he planted, and he pastored that church for a short while, wrote them this wonderful letter, and he's reflecting on his life and where his priorities used to be and what his ambitions are moving forward, and he's crystal clear now. He's like King David. I got it down finally. I know what the greatest priority is. I know what that one thing is. And it's verse 13. Brethren, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of my goal yet. That's being in glory. Not there yet. None of us are there yet. We're all in progress, aren't we? But I can tell you this. One thing I do. There it is. King David said the same thing. One thing. Everything else is secondary. One thing I do. Well, what is that, Paul? Well, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There it is. It's a simple answer. It's the Sunday school answer. What was his one goal? Knowing Christ, seeing Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ, not disappointing Christ, meeting Christ in his glory someday. That's my one goal. And then he reiterates that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where collectively he reminds that church, those Corinthians, and he says, we have as our ambition, we, me and my fellow ministers in the Lord, whether it's Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Luke, the men traveling, we have, we have as our ambition, that's the same thing, one thing, here's the priority, here's our greatest ambition, and it is to be always pleasing to God. What a great challenge. I mean, if you just come to church and hear that today, those, from those three verses. Christian, what is your one thing? What is your greatest priority? And hopefully everything else pales in importance and significance to that one thing because you're a Christian and a child of God and that is beholding the beauty of your Savior and Lord, the desire to be like Christ and know Him intimately and to have as your one and greatest driving motivation and ambition in this life is to be pleasing to him. That, in a nutshell, is the Christian life. And you don't get that, you miss it all. Everything else is informed by that. Everything else is secondary to that blessed truth. That is what is encapsulated in this narrative, non-didactic story that happened in the life of Jesus that Luke recorded in Luke chapter 10. That's what my friend Doug was assuming I would just pick up by reading the story that completely went over my head. So let's go back and look at that story, Luke chapter 10. We are going through the Gospel of Luke in order. And uh, Luke, again, was the 
assistant to the Apostle Paul, Paul's uh, friend, brother in the Lord. He was a physician, probably a saved Gentile, called by God after all those years of serving the ministry with Paul to write down another gospel to beautifully complement what Mark and Matthew had already written for the church. Luke gives us a lot of new information and new material. All of chapter 10 is new stuff. It's not in the other gospels. Beautiful. These unforgettable, amazing stories. I mean, uh, the Good Samaritan story. If it wasn't for Luke, we wouldn't have that. And this one right here. Thank you, Luke. Is it related to what came before and after? Well, it is, thematically, actually. We just saw that in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus had a conversation with a Jewish leader and scribe, and basically he was asking, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the Old Testament law say? And he quoted two summary verses. Well, the Old Testament says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.5, and it also says Leviticus 19, to love your neighbors yourself. That is the summary of the law. And Jesus said, that's correct. That is correct. And then Jesus knew this guy's heart. He knew he was a hypocrite. He knew for a fact that this Jewish Bible scholar of the Old Testament actually didn't fulfill and meet the requirement of Leviticus 19 because he didn't love everybody. He was selective in who he loved. It says, love your neighbor, and everybody you meet is your neighbor, so love everybody that you meet. And that guy didn't want to do that. So Jesus exposed his lack of love towards his neighbor. And basically, Luke is writing that down to let Theophilus know, hey, Theophilus, uh, even if you're a, a, a position of power in an authority and you're respected by others like this scribe who has authority and influence over other people, you're not in a special upper echelon separate from the rest of the people. You need to love your neighbor, and that's everybody. That is the ethic of Jesus. So he is speaking directly to Theophilus in this. Boy, you want to be a Christian, Theophilus, and follow the, the requirements of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to love your fellow man. and all, That means everybody, like this guy didn't do. And then maybe the second lesson is he's trying to reiterate here for Theophilus. Oh, and by the way, Theophilus, that, you know, that guy that quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, then you need to love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Jesus adds, you love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is with your entire being, holistically. In other words, you make God the priority. He is your focus. Everything else is secondary to your personal relationship with God. That's where it needs to be. Theophilus, the dignitary, is a direct challenge probably. And then he gives this beautiful little vignette of a story that's, that is true and historical to inform Theophilus' thinking. This is how you fulfill Deuteronomy 6.5. It's simple. You don't have to be a dignitary or a Jewish scribe or Pharisee to do it, to fulfill the spirit and the letter of Deuteronomy 6.5. Get this, to fulfill what God requires. God's standard, by the way, is here. I mean, it's above, it's sky high. No, let's say, God's standard is impossible. You need to love God perfectly with your whole being. The only way we can do that is with God's help by grace through faith. And here's an illustration of someone who did that. They love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Guess what? It's not a Jewish, respected, elitist, trained rabbi of a scribe. Guess what? It's not a dignitary. 
It's not a political official. It's not someone of means and influence. It's not even a man who fulfills that here. It's up until this point some nameless lady. And you read the story. She's not really doing a whole lot. But she fulfills God's impossible standard of Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This one thing. Beholding the beauty of the Lord. That's our greatest priority. That is the essence and heart and soul of worship. Let's look at this passage now in context. By the way, uh, where we are in Luke here, for since chapter, Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 9, that was the two-year Galilean ministry where Jesus infiltrated hundreds of towns with the gospel. Same gospel. Finished that. Then we saw in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that was the pivot point. Okay, now, last six months of his ministry, I am headed... To Jerusalem. That's where he's going. So ever since Luke 9, 51, he's been on that slow march to Jerusalem. And you put the four Gospels together, and it's just this slow, crisscrossing pilgrimage he's taking with his 12 apostles and maybe some of those 70 disciples and the women with him. And he's crisscrossing, and this goes on. So this is the Judea, the later Judean ministry from Luke chapter 10 to Luke chapter 19. That's what we're going to see. And Luke's emphasis there is the Lord Jesus. He's headed to the cross, and he knows it. He's got one mission. It's to die for sinners and rise again. And along the way, uh, we see many stories and much, an emphasis put on the teaching of Jesus, the ethic of, te- of Jesus, the morality of Jesus, the spirituality, uh, his demands. So that's a theme, the emphasis on his teaching and also that private training of his 12 apostles because they're going to take over for him when he leaves. And all the while as he's doing this, the hostility of the Jewish leadership, uh, the enmity is rising exponentially all the while. Six months now. Jesus knows uh, he's going to die. That was the beginning of chapter 10 was six, six months. Now, as we fast forward to Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it's about three months now. Three months away from the cross. So let's read the story. Let's just walk through it. Uh, I just got three points here, verse 38 to 42. Uh, the devotion, the distraction, and the decision. And I pulled those words right out of the text. Uh, the devotion is 38 to 39, exemplified by a woman we're introduced to named Mary. The distraction is verse 40. That's literally in the verse 40. That's Martha. She's distracted. And then finally, uh, 41 and 42 is the decision. The decision that... Mary made that Jesus commends her for, but it's also the decision we need to make. Are we going to decide to be like Martha, or are we going to decide to be like Mary? So let's look at it. First, the devotion, verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village. So they're traveling along. This picks up with uh, Luke 9.51. Jesus sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and they begin to travel. So he's been traveling. He's traveling with his apostles. We, we introduced, in, so he starts going to Judea now. Okay, I, I hit all the towns in Galilee. Now we're going to make our way to Jerusalem and Judah. And in order to do that, Jesus wants to pave the way as he goes to this long six-month journey, which means he'll probably go through Samaria. He'll go to the east over the Jordan River to the Decapolis, back over, traverse over there. So that's what we see 
from chapter 10 to verse 19. And to pave the way, uh, he sends 70 disciples ahead of him to pave the way, to go into all these towns, knock on doors, give the gospel, and see who's receptive and who is not. That was not just a short-term one deal with no long-term purpose. I believe the 70 were sent out to do this, to pave the way for Jesus on his itinerary so that as he's going on some of these very dangerous roads, it's, uh, I'm going to know from you guys what houses maybe we can stay at and ones we can't. We saw that some of the Samaritans were not welcoming. Get that Jesus out of here. We don't want you. Go away. They've already encountered that. But there were some who were receptive that they met along the way who were welcoming. And, oh, yes, we've heard about Jesus. My, oh, my, my, uh, my cousin, my second cousin, she was healed by the, that Lord. I heard him once down here in, in Judea. He's not down here very often, but I heard him once at the feast from a distance. There were thousands of people. I couldn't get close enough, but I heard him. Could he be the Messiah? So the 70 disciples, they're knocking on doors. They're finding out who's receptive, who's not. As they're heading to Judea, I think they could have knocked on this door in Bethany. It's just two miles away from Jerusalem, which was the home of three people at least. There was a lady named Martha, her sister Mary, and their brother Lazarus. We know they lived in Bethany because John 11 and John 12 tell us that. So that informs us here at Luke. So it could be, we don't know, but it's very possible that that's how they came to know Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That, oh, Jesus, there's a welcoming home we came across, and let's go here. They can accommodate us. And after all, I mean, it's, it's Jesus plus the 12 apostles probably. If they got people with them, all their stuff and all their animals, and maybe some of the women traveling with them, you got a big old entourage. Good luck trying to knock on somebody's door if it's a stranger especially. Hey, can you accommodate all uh, 32 of us and all of our animals for a day and, and feed us all? That's kind of a high calling. That's probably what's going on here. It, it could very well be that Jesus didn't know Mary, Martha, and Lazarus growing up because they lived in Bethany near Jerusalem, and Jesus didn't grow up in Judah. He was born in Bethlehem, and then he went to Nazareth, and that's where he grew up for 30 years and then spent most of his public ministry in Galilee. So it could be that uh, he just recently met a lady named Martha, a lady named Mary. Lazarus is not even mentioned in the story. Maybe Jesus hasn't mentioned, or maybe he's just not home. So they weren't longtime buddies and friends as far as we know. So their acquaintanceship may very well be young and recent. So it could be that Martha didn't quite know what she was getting or dealing with in this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. I think that's very apparent from the story and what we read later in John 11 and 12. So going back to the devotion point, number 1, verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village. And from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 19, Luke doesn't give any details about what villages they're going. He just says they went to a city, they went to a village, they talked to a certain man, they said this. So it's very generic because his point is uh, he's emphasizing something else. That is the teaching of Jesus the receptivity of it of his 12 apostles and the hostility of it of the Jewish leaders that will lead to his crucifixion. But that phrase, he entered a village. It doesn't matter what village. We know later that it's Bethany. Small town. You can go there today. Two miles east of 
Jerusalem, just right there on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. So he entered a village there, and no doubt it is with his apostles because his apostles are with them before this story, and his apostles are with them after this story, and the adverb now is a connective, and it goes together. He's not by himself. Not everybody's mentioned in the story, but that's okay. They weren't the focus. When we read in John 11 and John 12 where the focus is at this same home, at Martha's home, with Jesus, but we know the apostles are there at least, and probably more people. So maybe Martha had a relatively large home or property that she could accommodate a lot of visitors. So as they're traveling along, he entered a village, which was Bethany, and a woman named Martha. So she is introduced as, oh, by the way, here's a lady you've never met before, because you haven't. This is not a half-cousin of Jesus that that he grew up with. There's just a woman named Martha. Well, what about Martha? Well, Martha welcomed Jesus. Luke uh, uses unique verbs in verse 38, and especially in verse 40, he uses three unique verbs. So at least four different unique verbs, um, hardly used anywhere else. Sometimes he creates words by adding a whole bunch of prepositions on the front of them or combining two verbs together to make it emphatic. In the Greek language here. So the, the English language does not do justice to some of these words. And here's one of them. Martha welcomed Jesus. It, is it, oh, yeah, come on in. That's not the idea. Dekomai is to receive. That's just, yeah, sure, come on in. And then Luke adds an emphatic preposition on it. It's like, she really welcomed. She laid the red carpet out for Jesus and embraced him. Yes, I heard about you. I heard about, maybe she's met him before, heard him. Oh, absolutely. He can, absolutely he can come to my house. He's going to be... Uh, our special guest along with all of his friends and we'll accommodate all of them and we'll feed all of their animals and they can stay here. We'll just have a a dinner like you've never seen before and me and Martha, we're going to get up at the crack of dawn at 4 a.m. and we're going to start cooking and preparing a meal for 32. And I I would imagine that Martha was a go-getter. We've got a full-blown banquet going on here. But she embraced, that was very important, very welcoming because of that radical change in circumstances all of a sudden with the big but in verse 40. Very welcoming, very hospitable, please. And definitely Jesus is uh, the key person here. I mean, what would you think? How, how would you you're, put yourself back 2,000 years and you have an opportunity, you've heard about Jesus, maybe you've heard him preach, somebody you know got healed by him, maybe you got healed by him, he's passing through your town and he's going to end up at your house or your local church. Can you imagine? If he's walking through town, yeah, Jesus is coming through, he wants to spend two hours here at Creekside Bible Church. Man, let's roll out the red carpet, baby, let's get those windows clean, let's put and just disinfect the place and put out the crepe paper and on and on, and we're just rolling stuff out. Jesus is coming to town. That's the idea. Problem is Martha's going to get swallowed up in all the extracurricular needless details and forget about why they're having a meal. But she is welcoming. Got to give her credit for that. She is hospitable. So this is a good thing. Hospitality is a good thing. Hospitality is commanded of every Christian in the book of Peter and in Hebrews. It means stranger love. Don't just welcome your friends all the time, your little clique, your little club. Strangers is actually love people, welcome people you don't know. 
which is not easy for a lot of people. Well, Martha didn't have that. She was welcoming here. So she welcomes Jesus into her home, it says. So this could be that it's Martha's home. She's usually mentioned first among the siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So it could be that she was the oldest. could be that maybe she was a widow. We don't know. But it, was, it says her home. Take it at face value. She runs it like it's her home. She does stuff like it's her home. She bosses people around like it's her home. We see that here, but also in John 11 and 2. It is clear. This is her home. And Jesus welcomes her welcoming, and he will spend time at her home. So welcomes, embraces the Savior into her home. And then verse 39, very important, then she had a sister named Mary. This is the first time we've met Mary, too. We will see Mary later. So again, this is six months before the cross. We will meet Mary and Martha again. Fast forward six months to the last week before Jesus' death. That's John 11 and John 12. That's the only time in Scripture we see Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Six months before the cross, right here. One week, eight days before the cross, John 11, John 12. She had a sister called Mary. What was Mary doing? Uh, She was seated, and actually the Greek text is more specific here. I'll just read it to you what it says. Instead of at, uh, the preposition there is more specific. Mary was seated, literally, right beside And then literally, before the Lord's feet. In other words, Mary was, Jesus began to teach. And whether he was standing there teaching in that little home Bible study, or whether he sat down and took the posture of a rabbi and began teaching, Mary is elbowing everybody out of the way, gets down, literally down front, front row seat, and literally, practically in his lap, by his feet. And this is startling for many reasons. Jesus was a rabbi. He was officially a rabbi. The rabbis in Jesus' day, aside from Jesus, um, did not allow women to sit at their feet. That was completely unacceptable. That would be considered sacrilegious. Yet women, uh, yeah, they have their place, but it's not in the front row. It's actually not even near in this room. They can stand in the back of the wall over there, if at all especially in public. We know this to be the case. And here she is all the way, literally, practically sitting in his lap at his feet. That's an important phrase right there, at his feet, the feet of the Lord. One of the words for worship in the New Testament is literally to prostrate yourself down at the feet of God. At his feet. That's a, that's a specific phraseology, an idiom for humility, for being humble, for adoration, for showing due respect, for showing reverence at his feet. I bow at his feet. That's why this is about worship. That's what Mary is doing. She's not oblivious. She knows what she is doing. She knows who Jesus is. Doesn't have a long history with him, but she she got the message. She may have been changed and transformed by him. Who knows? But there's a huge difference between what... Martha thinks of Jesus and what Mary does. Mary lived at this house with Martha. They were sisters. They were joined at the hip. They did everything together. Mary, no doubt, was a partner with Martha in all things. 
And when they typically had a guest, Mary was probably there helping every step of the way. Not here. Mary, what was she doing? She was seated at the Lord's feet. And by the way, we're going to see this phrase about Mary and her attitude towards being in the submissive posture towards Jesus at his feet because we see it two other times in John. Six months later, a week before his death, when Jesus is in their home again, it says that Mary has this costly ointment and she anoints Jesus' feet as he's in their home. And the ointment was expensive. It was costly. She shattered the jar and just poured it all on Jesus' feet. Judas was there. He thought that was a complete waste. He was disgusted. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe she just did that. That was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars she just wasted on Jesus' feet. That's what he's thinking. He doesn't say that. He's got a more pious, arrogant hypocritical response. Oh, why did you do that? We should have saved it and saved the money for the poor. Liar. And she wants Jesus to rebuke Mary. Jesus commends Mary in John 11. Basically rebukes Peter, I mean uh, Judas, and the other apostles who were debating. Yeah, oh yeah, what's she doing? Jesus, take care of that. What's going on? And then Jesus interrupts, he rebukes and says, no, Mary has done the right thing. As a matter of fact, uh, she knows more than you guys. And she has a hint. She actually knows that I'm probably going to die because I've been saying it repeatedly. And you guys don't listen. Mary heard that. We know because Jesus said he commended Mary for putting, pouring oil over his feet because he said she has done an act. She has prepared me for burial. That's a deliberate act. She knew Jesus was going to die and gave him the flowers before the funeral instead of after. And that beautiful oil on his feet. And then in chapter 12 of John, once again, that last week before his death and their brother Lazarus is dead. They had become good friends now. And they heard that Jesus was passing through town again. This is just less than two weeks before the cross. Oh, Jesus is in the neighborhood. Jesus is coming. And then... Martha and Mary are talking about it. And they're in mourning because Lazarus, their brother, is dead. He's well-respected in that town. Everybody's mourning. Many Jews and visitors are over, giving their sympathy and their condolences. Lazarus is dead. We gave a message to Jesus four, years, four days ago. Where is he? Finally, after what, three or four days, Martha gets the word. Oh, wait, Jesus is in town. He's, he's coming to the house. Martha runs out of the house in the 100-yard dash, to find Jesus wherever he is, holding up a robe and whatever else, some old lady. And it literally says, but Mary stayed back at the house in typical Mary fashion. Who <laughs> The more passive one, Martha the go-getter. And then we'll pick up that story at the end to see what transpired and how this, I think this incident, this real-life interaction with God in the flesh transformed Martha in a very positive way. Uh, but here's Mary, her devotion. She's seated at the, the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Isn't that awesome? Listening to the teaching of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the counsel of Jesus. Maybe as he opened up a scroll that they had, who knows? Listening to his word. What is the word of Jesus? It's the word of God, isn't it? It's the living truth. 
It's life-changing truth. It's what God speaks. It's the mind of God. That's the word of Jesus. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It's universally binding. It is, like I said, life-changing. It is dynamic. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the same Word of God that brought the entire universe into existence out of nothing. That is the Word of God. And that is the Word of Jesus. Jesus made it clear. John chapter 8 and so many other places. He said publicly, I say nothing except that which the Father tells me to speak. I say only what the Father God tells me to speak. That's the Word of Jesus. It's the Word of God. And then in that verse in John 8, it's powerful. The little verse there, he says... After that, he says, I always do what the Father tells me to do. I always do what the Father tells me to do. Did Jesus ever claim to be perfect? Right there. I always do, without exception, what the Father tells me to do. This isn't just a man. This isn't just a rabbi. This isn't just a good teacher. This isn't just a a human social worker. This is the incarnate almighty God of the universe in the flesh, speaking the very words of God. That is what Mary is there. That's what she understands. This is life-changing truth. I want the front row. I'm at his feet in adoration, fixated. I want to hear it all. I want the living waters to refresh my soul. That's Mary's attitude. That is devotion. And what's the practical application for us as Christians? We should, if you're a real Christian, your heart should be panting after the, the waters, like David said in the Old Testament, as the deer pants after the water, so my heart longs for thee, O God, in your word. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. What's that? For truth, for God's word. Can't take it in enough. As a Christian, if you want to grow and not be stunted, if you want to grow and thrive, the Word of God needs to be like an IV in your soul, 24-7. It drives you. It will make you a better person in every area. It will make you a more uh, responsible, faithful spouse, uh, a more faithful, loving parent. It will change every area of your life if it is the priority, if it's put in proper order with the proper balance. Mary understood this. She is listening to His Word. That's probably the key in this passage. That's what I missed that day 30 years ago in my dorm room. What was Mary doing? She's listening to the word of the Lord. And that was her desire. So that was the devotion. What was the distraction? That's verse 40. But, huge conjunction, circle it. Huge contrast, huge change, huge problem. 180 with everybody involved in the story, particularly with Martha. Martha, the welcoming one. Come and be the guest in my home. Let me bless you. In contrast to Mary at the Lord's feet, listening to the word, taking it in from the Savior of the world and the creator of the universe, verse 4, but Martha was distracted. Here's another one of Luke's powerful verbs. Distracted, pulled away, dragged away from is one literal translation. Distracted. Here's another. It's a compound verb. Can't even put it into English words. Here's another translation. Twisted out of sorts. In her mind and even in her face was contorted. It's it's picturesque. So put that in there. All this is going on. This has been going on for a while, by the way, because of another verb used later uh, in this, the sentence. 
that Jesus has been teaching a while. She's been doing preparations for a while. Uh, Mary was helping her at one point to get all the preparations. We know that because the verb used later where she says that Mary has left me. It's Mary kept leaving me. That's literally the Greek word. Mary kept leaving me. Mary, get in here in the kitchen. Mary, get in here. Mary, get in here. What do you keep doing? Well, I'm, I want to hear Jesus. Well, I want to hear Jesus. Well, I want to hear Jesus. That's what's going on. So Mary is just persistent. She wants to hear Jesus. She's at his feet. She's listening to his word. The teaching's going on. Everybody's in there focused on Jesus. She's in the kitchen. She's got the dishes piling up. Oh, the, the bread, the main dish, that's burnt. And now the fish, it's, not, it's all crispy. It's not moist anymore. What in the world's going on? I can't even do all the dishes. Now we got a fire over in that corner. Get that wild duck. Get that. Who knows what's going on in the kitchen? But that's what's going on. So because Jesus said, you are twisted out of sorts with all of your preparations. And I can see it on your face. That's what Luke's communicating. Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. She was literally pulled away from what really mattered by all of her stuff. Some of it important. Yeah, having a meal together, that's important. Having hospitality, that's important. Eating food, that's a necessity. Make sure everybody has water. Yeah, sure. Not letting the, bur the bread burn. Yeah, well, yeah. They're all important, but they're not really that important. They're not the most important thing. That's the point of the story. She got her priorities wrong. Uh, she was distracted with all this stuff, pulled away from all this stuff. And here's another verb. And she came up to Jesus. She came up to Jesus. Literally, uh, it's a, another compound Greek word. Uh, epitasa, compound word. It's an aggressive verb. What that means literally is she burst in upon Jesus. That's what it means. She exploded. Okay, I have had it. Mary's been out there the whole time. She's supposed to be helping me. She agreed to be helping me. She's been in there the whole time at his feet, listening to his teaching. This has been going on for two hours. I have had it. I need help. And she literally burst in on the Bible study in the middle of Jesus, the master, the God-man, teaching the Word of God. That is what this means. She came up to him in his face burst in upon Jesus, stormed up to him, another translation. Can you imagine? I mean, I would, I would have loved to be there, but I wouldn't want to be there <laughs> to see this. I can't even imagine. Wow. Now, Martha, give her credit. She's a believer, probably. Could be. Sympathetic to Jesus, welcomed in her home. So this is not like an unbeliever or one of these Pharisees that Jesus was always butting heads. But this is a believer. This could be one of us. As we're looking down, oh, no, Martha, she's pathetic. Uh, we, this could have been us probably. <laughs> but she literally came up to him, burst in, disrupted him to, right in his face, and she said, Lord. Now, that's kurios, so it could be that she's giving him due recognition. He is more than a man. He is the Lord. Because usually that word in reference to Jesus means he is the Lord. He is deity. Confess with your mouth, Jesus has Lord, he's the God-man. Could be that she understood an element of that. Maybe not. Maybe it was just a very highly respectful term, as we saw in 1 Peter 3, giving him due reverence just as a man and as the Bible teacher and as a rabbi. But it's a term of respect, somewhat. There's some recognition there, yet she's completely being over the top and rude. And by the way, this is a public dinner. This would be, imagine... You're around with your family or whatever, and you got 32 of your relatives, and you're, the table's set, and everybody's eating, and they're conversing. You're about to begin. 
and there's 32 people, and just one person, the, the aunt in your family, just bursts out of the kitchen, blows the doors open, interrupts the itinerary or somebody that's talking or the, the designated prayer person in the middle of their prayer. Hold on, wait a minute now, just a second here. And everybody's looking at Grandma or Auntie Sue. Woo! Uh-oh, we got, a, we got a live one. That's what's going on here. Or at the rehearsal dinner for the wedding with all 30 people gathered in that formal setting. And we are operating by proper decorum and protocol and manners. And here she comes out of the kitchen storming out. Nah, nah, give me that microphone. Whoa, that's what's going on. I'm not exaggerating. The audacity is at the highest level. Lord, do you not care? Wow. Here is some woman talking to, like I said, the Lord and the creator of the universe. And everything that we've learned about Jesus in the gospel of Luke so far, you know, the one that uh, does miracles, the one that casts demons out of people publicly, the one who defeated Satan, the most powerful being in the universe in Luke chapter 4 and said, uh, Satan, get behind me, and he fled. That Jesus, that's who she's contending with here. Oh, that Jesus that goes to a funeral and ruins the funeral because he raises everybody from the dead when he gets there? That Jesus. The Jesus who has literally been confronted and butting heads with the Jewish leadership, the most influential, intimidating people in that country for three years now, toe-to-toe, head-to-head. He doesn't fear anything or anybody. He's not backing down to anybody. Does she not know what she's doing? Does she not know who she's confronting? Apparently not. Because she wouldn't have said, Lord, and it's a rhetorical question. It's a snarky question. It's a sarcastic question. It's insinuating wrong things. It's an implicating question. She's impugning Jesus' character. Lord, do you not care? What is she saying? Lord, you don't care. Now, she is not saying this softly, probably. This is at the top of her lungs because her face was out of sorts. And Jesus could see it. Do you not care? She's saying to the merciful, gracious Lord of the universe who says to all of us as the blessed Savior, I care for you, therefore cast all your anxieties in my lap. I love you, I care for you. Lord, do you not care? This is uh, quite nothing like it. Do you not care that my sister has left me, that my sister has abandoned me. And this is imperfect active. That means she has kept on doing, she has repeated, are you not, have you not been paying attention that as you're given your Bible study, the lady, my sister sitting at your feet, keeps getting up back and forth, coming in the kitchen and leaving repeatedly. You know what she's doing? She's abandoning me in the kitchen. How am I supposed to get everything done? This party's for you! I wish I could dramatically, you know, reenact what she was like. I'm trying my best. (laughs) But this is not far from it. Do you not care that my sister keeps on leaving me so that I have to do all the serving alone? Now, in a sense, there's, there's a truism there, right? She did have to do all the serving alone. Yeah, that's true. So it's not like an untrue statement. It's an inappropriate statement because it's an illegitimate question. It's an accusation. And she's impugning the God of the universe. 
course I know. Jesus is omniscient. And he cares. He cares more than anybody. The irony is he cares about Martha more than anybody else does. He cares about Martha more than Martha cares about Martha. That's our blessed Savior. And you have left me to do all the serving alone. Then, and then just right away, she doesn't even allow him to answer the question. How unfair is that? You ask somebody a question, you interrupt. No, I'm not, I'm not going to let you answer the question. And then rhetorically, she, she says, then tell her to help me. And again, a triple compound verb being used here. Then you need to, of course you know, then you need to tell Mary to help me right now. She needs to get up, stop listening to you, and come and help me in the kitchen so we can all have a good time. That, that's what's going on here. Well, that is the distraction. Martha is distracted. She's got the wrong priorities. Mary's got it right. She's devoted. Martha, she's off kilter. She's distracted. Thank you, Jesus, for the resolution. Verse 41 and 42. The decision. You got another but. So in contrast to that horrible scenario that just transpired, man, let's turn this baby back around 180 degrees again to where we were in verse 38 when everything was blissful. Everybody was getting along with all that wonderful hospitality. But the Lord answered and said to her. And this is where I in inject myself into the story, and I'm thinking, man, what would I have done? If Number one, if I was Jesus, what would I have said? And then number two, if I was a spectator there. I know what I probably would have said if I was a spectator there and saw all this transpire. I probably would have stood up and said, to, to Martha, I would have said, hey, you wait a second here, lady. You back off. This is Jesus. That's what I would have done. And that would have been completely inappropriate. And Jesus probably would have said, son, sit down. <laughs> or Satan, get behind me. <laughs> sit down. Nobody asked you. That's what I would have done. And then what would Jesus do? That's always helpful, right? No, no, it isn't. That's never helpful. Because what would Jesus do? Subject, subjunctive, meaning we're going to guess what Jesus might do? No, we're not. We'll be wrong every time. Just like when I'm reading the Gospels and I guess, okay, what's Jesus going to say to this person? I always get it wrong. They ask him a question. I always get it wrong of what the answer is that he's going to give. It's like I never would have said that. I never would have thought of that. So uh, I gave up on that what would Jesus do thing. It's not helpful. It's actually dangerous. It should be, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Not what would he do. We don't know what he would do. What an insult to the almighty, omniscient God of the universe, who is the sovereign one. It's not our place to predict what Jesus or God might do. He tells us what happened. Here's what the Lord did. He did the completely unexpected. He was just accosted. He was embarrassed. He was insulted. What would most people do? It's not what would Jesus do. What would all of us do? We'd all probably do the same thing. We would react. We would be defensive. We would make a scene. We'd take her on toe-to-toe. -to -toe. We'd start a fight. We'd ruin the day. We'd spoil everybody's appetite for dinner. We would show no grace. We would show no mercy. Be ugly. Doesn't that sound like a typical family holiday? For some people. <laughs> For some people it is. Thanksgiving and Christmas. That isn't what Jesus did. This is actually, listen to what he said. The Lord said to Martha, right there on the spot, Martha, Martha, Martha. He repeats her name twice. Martha, Martha. 
So this is a, it's a rebuke. It is very pointed. It's very personal. Like I said, he didn't say, hey, you lady, we just met a week ago. Martha, Martha. It is a rebuke, but it's, it's mild. It's tempered. It's focused, razor-like precision, which is always with Jesus. Does away with the extracurricular that doesn't need to be addressed. He's the sinless one. He knows he's dealing with sinners everywhere he goes. He lives with sinners. He came to die for sinners. This is not the unforgivable sin. He knows that Martha at least showed some belief. She was hospitable. She's got... She's salvageable. If this was a Pharisee, on the other hand, he'd say, he wouldn't say Martha, Martha. Right? He would say, woe to you, hypocrites, snakes, sons of hell. He does that later. But this is Martha. Martha, Martha. So it's a rebuke. It's a mild rebuke. It's tempered. It's totally appropriate. Brings the elevation down probably calms her a little bit. Her face is becoming less contorted and distorted. She can actually breathe now. <sighs> Smoke isn't coming out of her ears anymore. It's a beautiful thing. Martha, Martha. Jesus does this at times uh, when he rebuked Peter. P Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon. Did your parents ever say that to you? Repeat your name twice? You knew you were in trouble. Oh, Clifford, Clifford. Martha, Martha. But that's what he's doing here. It's a rebuke. And he just cuts right to the chase. You are worried, and there's these two more verbs, worried and bothered. They're very picturesque, very specific. Uh, you are overcome with anxiety. Your emotions are completely out of control, and as a result, you have lost focus. You have lost focus of your priority. You cannot even think straight. The combination of these two verbs, worried and bothered. This is not good. This is not healthy. This is not normal. You are over the top. It all starts with your thinking is wrong. And it's affecting your emotions and your behavior and your words and your demeanor and your countenance. That's what all this means. Because right to the chase. So on the one hand, Jesus is gracious in the way he addresses her, Martha, Martha. And on the other hand, he just doesn't let it slide. He doesn't justify her self-centered sin either. He says, you know what, Martha? You're right. You are in the kitchen for this feast that is for me, and you are all by yourself. You, you know, you've got a point there. Let's deal with it. Let's fix that. He doesn't do that because that would not have been appropriate. Because, yes, Mary wasn't helping with the dishes in the kitchen, which would have been a good thing, but Jesus knew she was preoccupied with a better thing. She was preoccupied with the best thing, and that was being focused in worship on Jesus. Nothing could trump that. I'm not taking that away from Mary. No way. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, so many things, the trivial things, the secondary things, uh, not just trivial things, some important things, but they aren't the priority. They are secondary. They don't matter most. Let's worry about and focus on what matters most when it's time to focus on that. That's what the priorities are. So you are worried and bothered about so many things. This is easy for us to do, isn't it, with our sinful, finite constitutions as human beings? I mean, this, for some of you, this is probably a battle every single day. You battle with anxiety in your thought, life, and your emotions every single day. What's the solution? You've got you to adjust and manage your thinking. That's the solution. It's all about your thought life. 
Where are your priorities? How are you thinking? How are you managing, managing your thought life? How are you using the Word of God to manage your thinking? Of your intake? Are you like that IV in your arm, the constant intake of the living Word of God, which is the only thing that can monitor, change, and manage your thinking as a fallen, finite, sinful human being? It starts there. What am I saying? It all comes down to listening to His Word, like Mary did. That's where you get a hold of it. We're all emotional beings. But you are worried and bothered about so many things. Uh, but only one thing is necessary. Only one thing matters. For Mary has... And he commends Mary. I'm not gonna, I am not going to implicate Mary here, Martha. As a matter of fact, I'm going to commend her publicly to your shame. It's a rebuke. For Mary has chosen the good part. She's chosen the good thing. She's chosen the necessary thing, the one necessary thing. It wasn't doing dishes. The Savior of the universe is right here in your living room, and that's where you should be on the floor at my feet. That's what he means. The worship of our God, that's priority number one. Don't let anything else compete with it. Don't let anything else smother it out or squelch it or take you away from it. When everybody in life lets you down, the closest of friends and family members... If you're a Christian, your Lord is always there. That's where you should be. That's priority number one. That's your anchor in life. That gets you through the next day. That gets you through the next hour. That gets you through the next minute. Your devotion to your Lord. That's the point of the story. Mary did it right. Martha, you got it wrong. And I am not going to take it away from her. And then that's the end of the story. Nothing more. It's breathtaking. A lot of question marks. Wow, then what happened? Who knows? Then John comes along 30 years later. He tells us what happened next. Fast forward. Six months later, a week before the cross. Going back to John chapter 11. Actually, chapter 12 was the anointing of the feet. Chapter 11 is the resurrection of Lazarus. And we left off where they heard that Jesus was in town. It's a week before, just within two weeks of his death. And Martha runs out to go find Jesus. Mary stays at home. Uh, Martha comes up to... Actually, let's go there. I just want to close with these two verses. And you tell me if uh, Martha is a new person. You tell me if Martha has a change of attitude. You tell me if you think Martha learned her lesson. And she, the most important thing is she has come to fully understand and recognize who Jesus is. Listen to how she confronts Jesus in a more dire situation than, Oh, the bread is burning in the kitchen. It's now, my, my brother is dead. John 11, verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Jesus, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said, so she caught up to Jesus. She finally finds him, and she said to Jesus, hold on. Oh, come on, Martha, don't let me down. What did she say to Jesus? Verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, okay, so far so good. But that's what she said last time, and she got in trouble. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Whoa. Uh-oh, this doesn't look good. Although what she's saying is true. Verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask, Jesus, that, that you ask of God, God will give it to you. Ooh, that's good stuff. 
She's showing sensitivity to the will of the Father. Verse 23, and then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the end of the age, but he's dead now. Jesus knew that. And so Jesus said in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Boy, what a great question. How far along have we come in the last six months? Remember the last time I was at your house, how unfortunate that was. Remember what Mary was doing, what she believed about me? That's what this question recalls. Do you believe this? Do you believe in me? Do you believe in my word? Do you believe I truly am the Lord? Verse 27, Martha said to Jesus, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Even he who comes into the world. It's awesome. Martha came around. There's hope for all of us. All you, yeah, amen. All you uh, A-type personalities out there. All you pushy, agenda-driven people out there. Man, there's hope for you. Then all you passive people. Got your problems too. There's hope for you. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen. Let's go to lunch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and being with God's people and the joy of going to your word, your truth, with the help of your spirit. We, we do pray, God, that you help us understand these things accurately as they truly happen. And what a vision of Jesus Christ here. So complex. Your sovereignty, Lord Jesus. Your omniscience, that you know all things. You know us better than we know ourselves. Your mercy and grace. Your patience with us pathetic sinners. Your love for us. Your life-changing power. And you brought it all to the cross and resurrected again so that we might have new life. We thank you that we have hope in you. We have hope that we can change through you and you alone. We give you all the glory. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.